0: Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. A quick note. Unfortunately, the audio is a little choppy, but the content is excellent. Please be patient and work through it. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Luke Marvel, with Luke Marvel Broker in College Station, Texas. Last year, he closed 202 transactions with a total sales volume of $42 million and managed 300 rental units. His average sales price was 207000 of which 30% were buyers and 70% were sellers. He has a two-member sales team, one transaction manager and one team leader. Luke Marvel is the team leader of the Marvel team. He's been an agent for 6 years. In his best year, Luke sold 234 homes worth 48 million. In this call, Luke talks about selling 14 homes his first year. By his 5th year, he was ranked the number 1 agent in America in units for Century 21. How he positioned himself to work a few small investors who purchase 1 to 2 rental units per year specializing in the college student housing market. 50% of his business is working with investors who want to rent to students. 30% of his business is working with parents who want to purchase a property for their kids to live in while they attend college. How parents are offsetting the college cost by owning the rental their kids live in. Why he uses simple pro formas that explain the benefits of the investment Without overcomplicating the financials and focusing on the projected cash on cash return. Teaming up with a developer to build a student housing master plan community called The Barracks. Starting a property management company with 10 employees to service student rentals and their unique 51 week terms. Where to find investors. How to attract the students with on campus and on site events. Why millennials are willing to spend heavily on experiences and using that concept in your marketing. Luke's impressive personal portfolio of rental units and commercial properties. How Luke defines a good investment and why most investors don't like it. Team dynamics, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Luke. Hey, this is Luke Marvel. Luke, thanks for joining us today. Before we talk about what you're Doing today. Let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate.
1: <laughs> it's a great question. I'm fairly young. I'm currently 31 years old um, and only been in the business about six years. Prior to entering the world of real estate, went to college, went to Pepperdine University in uh, Los Angeles area, and then went into corporate finance and accounting for about three years between LA and South Texas area i always wanted to get into real estate. I actually had bought an investment property and was just uh, fascinated by it and wanted kind of the entrepreneurial lifestyle of being able to eat what I kill and get the direct result from the results of my actions and be able to really make that difference and not just be tied to a 3% annual increase. Um, and so I took the jump and I was started into real estate at that point in 2011.
0: Wow, that's fantastic. It sounds like you always want to be an entrepreneur. Nor, had anybody in your family been in real estate or been an entrepreneur you know, how did you pick real estate an interesting question not really that doctor my mom stays at home and there's not really anybody in my
1: family that's real estate related or that entrepreneurial uh, it really just always fascinated me from probably about 10 years old um, and I got really interested in hotels and hotel operations and Then in middle school and high school, I wrote papers on wanting to run hotels, some of that stuff, and that translated over into real estate. Growing up, I had a mentor in high school and a family friend who was uh, CEO of Supra, who obviously kind of defined the access control for real estate sales almost worldwide. And so that was kind of a connection that was formative, but he's not actually in real estate. It was more complimentary business.
0: Well, very good. Let's do this. Let's fast forward to the beginning of your career, that first year. Did you have a fast start or a slow start?
1: Um, I had a fairly quick start, at least if you look at the 12-month period. Uh, I mean, I think anybody who gets into real estate, at least if you're not part of a team where they're just feeding you, it's going to feel slow. About three months in that I had my first sale, I tried to be very intentional and kind of strategic about what I did is tried to develop the right patterns and habits that I thought would create progress and result in lead generation and cultivating that pipeline. Um, and it ended up kind of coming around. I think the first year, I probably sold 14 properties or so. And I was the rookie of the year in my local uh, Century 21 office. So um, I think relatively
0: fairly busy, even though it didn't always really feel like it. So you said you were the rookie of the year. You were developing these patterns and habits, you said, at the beginning. What specifically were you doing? What were those patterns and habits that resulted in those 14 closings?
1: You're kind of turning the wheels back. I try to remember, uh, I did some research on some of the most effective times to make calls um, and when people were most receptive. You know, And so at least in the research I had, it was between the hours of 5 and 7 p.m. So I would usually stay at the office, I'd do research and gather properties for clients and that sort of stuff. Every night between five and 7 p.m. I would make calls the entire time and then I'd leave at seven. Most of the time, most of the other agents left for the day and you got a hold of almost every single person you called. Almost every weekend uh, and sometimes more than one day a weekend, I would hold an open house um, and I had a very specific protocol that I did of you know listing it online and with the local advertising outlet five days before, doing certain things one day before, you know, walking the entire community with forty flyers and handing them out the day before as well, and then having food items homemade, that sort of thing, and certain hours for those open houses. And then, you know, really it was just consistently giving back to clients as quickly as possible and setting the expectation, as well as having to that point it was kind of a homemade CRM type uh, structure in Excel, but being able to track all the leads, when the last time I had contacted them, and having kind of those automatic reminders that I need to contact these five people today. I haven't heard from them. This is what they're interested in, and that sort of thing. Just some of the basic habits that I think grew into, grew into bigger, better
0: things. You said you were calling between five and seven. So you were prospecting. Who were you calling? Century 21, as most of the real estate brokers have fairly different
1: lead generation, and usually you pay some sort of fee for it. A lot of times, it was people through that system, um, as well as literally, it was myself and kind of another new agent that we would brainstorm. Uh, honestly, one of the more popular or successful things that I did was basically offer for sale by owner. I'd offer to the list their house for free do professional photography and that sort of stuff out of my own pocket, but then it would obviously result in this automatic lead generation because all of a sudden you're a new agent, but you have at least a couple of listings. So it would be those people that were falling off the existing listings or the leads that were coming in.
0: Okay, so you would go out and list the first sale by owner without the listing side of the commission. The Frisbo would still pay the buyer's side, and you were picking up the leads that were coming in off the sign. Correct. Thanks for walking us through how you got started in the early years. Let's fast forward to today. I think you mentioned this already, but I'm going to ask, how long have you been in the business? About six years. So got my license, I believe, back in May of 2011. And how many homes did you sell last year? Uh, About 202 homes. Do you know what the sales volume on that was? Uh, Approximately 42 million. 42 million. That's fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. Interestingly, that was not your best year. Your best year was the year before that. Do you recall how many homes you sold that year and what the sales volume was?
1: Yeah, 2015 was my best year. of uh, 234 homes
0: worth about 48 million. Wow. And did I understand correctly that you were named the top agent for Century 21 that year? Yeah, I was Top agent, Century 21 for the whole U.S. Number of properties sold. That's fantastic. So number one agent, USA, Century 21, 2015, the number of units. Congratulations. That's a pretty awesome accomplishment. That was, what, your fifth year in business? Yes, sir. Hey, Luke, how many homes do you think you've sold in your career? And what was the sales volume? About 700 homes rough value of about 136 million. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, let's do this. Let's make sure everybody knows where you are. Where is College Station, Texas? <laughs> so, first of all, it's home of Texas
1: A&M University, which most people are probably familiar with or at least heard of. It is about an hour outside of Houston, dab in the middle of Texas. It's right between kind of in the middle of what they call the Texas Triangle. Uh, Dallas, Houston, and San Antonio. Texas is a big state, but about 80% of the population live within that metro area, and Texas AM and m is uh, one of the, the two biggest schools here in the state of Texas.
0: And do you know what the uh, population is there in College Station?
1: Of the whole metro area, um, you're looking at right about 225,000 people. Uh, you know, if you look at Really, just the cities, is probably a little bit under 200 but then kind of the whole area, it jumps up a little bit. We do have, you know, just given the games, football games, a bunch of alumni and traffic coming in, game day weekend, for example, you know, there's an additional 110,000 people in town, and that's actually a decent portion of our sales demand and volume is the fact that old alumni love to come back, love to buy game day homes, book my homes for their kids, um, and that sort of thing. So even though it's not the biggest area, it is a uh, very, very active
0: real estate market. Do you know the population of the school itself, Texas A&M, how big is it compared to the city?
1: Yeah, so it's about 50,000 undergrads that are here in town, and then an additional roughly 10,000 graduate students that are also here.
0: Wow, so about 60,000 students, so the students are making up, oh, just over a third, just under a fourth of the population there. Yes, you also have, you know, if you look roughly
1: twenty to 25,000, like, staff and faculty, and not you kind of support staff. So when you, when you round it out, you're probably looking at 85,000, 90,000 people kind of for the university, whether it's students, faculty, staff, that side of the town. Uh, but then you have an even greater number of that that's not. There is definitely a strong residential community, and it obviously know, depends on what neighborhood you're in town. But it's
0: not just a college town. Uh, so it's grown out. It's developed beyond just being a college town. Yes, sir. Can you please describe the current real estate market there? Yeah, definitely. Well, we're really looking at average
1: sales covering between 225 and 230. So still fairly reasonable, but definitely up. Probably in the last five years, I mean, it was probably in the 170s, 175. So it's definitely gone up a significant amount, you know, in the last several years. Uh, days on market, the average is about 75 to 80 days on market, uh, but it really depends on what you're selling. Uh, so the middle of the market, you have something that's clean and well represented. You know, you're looking at definitely sub 30s but there's also some things that take quite a bit longer. And so they put that average up quite a bit. If you look at volume at an overall level, more than half of our volume is kind of unique, but it's related to the university. So the university obviously creates a unique market, whether it's investment and you're selling it to an investor and leasing it out, or you know, whether it's parents, or alumni looking for a game day purchase, um, you have, you know, a lot of times kids go to school for in the range of four years. let say four, because a lot of times it's five nowadays. Uh, but so you have this, if somebody buys a house for their kid during those years, um, you have usually a three-year turnover cycle, roughly. And so that's why I'd say about half of the volume in town is related to that. Um, the other half purely residential. Um, so And that usually, so sorry, the student stuff is primarily a little bit higher density. So I think townhomes, um, condos, or just smaller lot, smaller footprint properties, the overall average of student properties may be closer to 200 or, or a little bit below. Other half of the market is residential. So you're thinking kind of regular residential, uh, master plan communities, uh, country clubs, town neighborhoods, some of that stuff. Um, and we do actually have Quite a bit of higher end acreage communities with homes in the 500s up to a million, um, but a lot of those, you know, all that residential piece is going to average 3 to 350. Um, so it's a little bit higher price point, you know, obviously a little bit nicer, uh, higher quality, some of that stuff. What I do, while well, I do sell all over the market, and have I traditionally have focused on investment because I personally am a fairly experienced real estate investor, have a ton of properties myself. And so I love that aspect of it and that side of it. And I really come from the corporate finance and accounting side. So I'm able to easily understand the whole financial modeling, cap rate, valuation, that sort of stuff, is able to provide value to those investors more than some other agents may be able to.
0: What percentage of your business are you selling properties to non-owner occupied investors?
1: So, that's not owner occupied investors, probably about 50%. Um, if you say not owner occupied investors plus parents buying for their kids, which are kind of a subset of that, uh, probably
0: 80%. So about 30% of your business is parents buying a place for their kids while they go to school. Yes. That's not a bad little situation because they're going to be there four or five years, then they're going to turn around and need to sell, right? Got it. You also mentioned that you're a big time investor. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your portfolio? What have you put together there?
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: definitely. So over the course of the six years,
1: I not only so i am probably a little bit rare breed on the real estate side just because I haven't just done sales I've also been involved in construction, some development projects, some rehab flips. I have a property management company as well so it's been accumulation of properties throughout that process um, that some we've built from scratch, but a lot we've accumulated and remodeled some and held on to. Uh, right now, I have between 20 and 25 properties, uh, some small auto style, uh, some single family, um, about half students. student. And then I also have three different commercial warehouse type properties as well stuff all over. I really, honestly, just look for good deals um, and things that I can add value to that other people don't see the value in. But it's just building the access and the opportunity. uh, But also, the big thing I impress upon investors is I've been there. I know what it feels like to lose money on a property. I know what it feels like to make a lot of money on a property. I know what those pain points are, and I know that entire process. Um, Also, know how to get financing, correct insurance, and that sort of stuff. You know anything from simple residential to complex commercial projects, where you need ten plus insurance policies for one building. So, really, kind of having that nuts and bolts experience
0: has just provided a lot more value uh, to the people I'm around. Are you typically buying and holding or flipping the properties? Uh, typically, buying and holding. You mentioned often your goal is to find a good deal. How would you define a good deal? as an investor?
1: (laughs) Um, So I kind of target certain parameters. And parameters, a lot of times, the other people aren't attracted to, and that's why it makes it a good deal. So ironically, a lot of times, the properties that your clients are interested in are the ones that aren't the best deals. And the best deals, a lot of times, they aren't interested in those. Um, And I think for those of you who do that investment real estate out there know what I'm talking about, there's very few investors out there that really want those messy deals that usually kind of, you know, are the best ones available. In the range. I don't have it in front of me. But, I mean, it's everything from um, interiors being painted weird colors, you know, from pinks to greens. Uh, usually we'll say that a very steep discount. Ironically, if they have very poor pictures of them taken online, is another one. Third of that is if it's an investment property area, but it's unleashed uh, and not currently with a management solution in place. Um, We've done some multi-family projects where they're half-occupied, where you have to get creative with financing. So some of those things that you take an investor to, and they say, no, I don't like this, it's not for me, um, is really like, that's kind of what i specialize in or like, and then trying to add value because of the resources at hand. I, obviously, it has to fit kind of the standard of, you know, location, aid, right, all that stuff still has to fit. But if there's a ton of capital senators you can't pay top dollar or anywhere close to it, you know, it's kind of a sliding scale. But those are some of the key features that I look for in light of everything else.
0: You're looking for a problem property that you can purchase at a discount that you feel has problem that you can quickly solve to get the vacancy uh, to change, to get the, the revenues up, and to get this property producing for the long term. And you're willing to go in there and take a couple months to tinker around with it to solve those problems as long as you can get a deep enough discount. Is that correct? That'd be exactly correct. Let's go back to your real estate brokerage side. You said that If I have this correctly, you've got uh, about 50% of the time you're working with investors, another 30% you're working with parents on these properties for these college kids. The 50% that are investors, are they typically investing in properties that will be rented out to the college kids?
1: The vast majority, I'd say, of rentals in this area, it mostly is student rentals. Uh, There's a few people who tend towards residential just because it's usually lower turnover, you lower damage issues, you don't have roommate issues, some of that stuff, but um, you also don't get the same premium, you uh, know, kind of rent premium and investor premium that you do with student properties.
0: So you're pretty much an expert in student rentals. That's 80% of your business. That's correct. So it sounds to me as though that's your niche. If I were to ask you what your niche is, it'd be student rentals.
1: Yeah, student rentals, I mean, just investment in general, but student rentals definitely is a subset of that, Yes. Yeah.
0: Let's talk about those student rentals and dig into that. We don't typically find someone who's working that market, so this is very interesting. What's the challenge with student rentals, uh, finding the properties or finding the tenants for those properties? So both. You have to have both and you have to be very good at executing on both. You can sell somebody on a
1: property all day long, but if you can't deliver on it, never get that repeat client and you obviously gain the reputation for being unreliable. And it'll pretty quickly come and go. Uh, and you definitely see those people. So that's actually the unique part of what I did with property management on the back end and some of that stuff is really have to look at execution over the life cycle of that property. We're usually kind of in traditional real estate sales. You really only care from the lead generation all the way to the closing. Um, and really for us, the closing is almost the beginning of that actual relationship. And usually that relationship goes three or four years, and then it's divesting that and getting something else. So it's a much longer term relationship that's built on execution. And you said lead generation in that. Kind of think of, you know, if you're a parent, if you're an investor investing in an area outside your area, how are you going to go about finding information about the area, you know, there, what properties are available, that sort of stuff. Obviously, we've all heard it a ton, but the internet is, is that much more important. You're three hours away, you're not just going to go drive around and look at, and see how a neighborhood feels. 90% of people who find their homes online, it's probably like 99%. So, your web presence is extremely important. Um, and then also the value side, which is, again, something that I think most commercial real estate agents are probably more adept in uh, going pro forma. Doing the projected financials of a property, um, what the costs of ownership are, and that sort of stuff, and regular residential isn't quite as adept at. But having very easily digestible information that the average everyday person can look at in two or three minutes, and really feel comfortable that this is by far a better investment than renting, than um, you know, or doing anything else, or buying an investment property anywhere else. Because you've been able to dumb it down and communicate effectively exactly what the risks are, what their upside is, and what they can expect to make on it versus leaving money in the bank or stock or some other investment opportunity.
0: Walk us through a little bit of that where you found a parent, they're looking at making one of these investments. Uh, you said you're kind of dumbing things down, but you're using that commercial side. Give us some of the metrics that you would use and describe. You said you could do it in three minutes. One of the metrics that you would use or present to that potential buyer or investor. Most investors that we deal with are onesies, twosies. Uh,
1: they're not looking at
0: cap rate or
1: more corporate things. They're used to their money in a CD, a savings account, or stock market. So they don't present kind of a cap on cash return as the equivalent. So what we represent, is a cap on cash return. They know if they go out and put a hundred grand in a CD at a bank a certificate of deposit, that they're going to get maybe 1%. So if I can show on an investment return that they're going to make 7%, 8%, up to 14%, uh, it's pretty easily comparable to what they know. It's a typical tool that we've used is a very simplified, dummy down pro forma. Uh, so it shows the rent coming in, what's going to affect rent that, and that's a realistic number. That's not an inflated number. And then breaking down all the costs. Uh, you know, what, it, what does it cost for debt service at a, at a 10%, 20% or cash uh, situation? What's insurance? What's taxes? So what's a good repair estimate given these, you know, let's say they're brand new or if they're not brand new, uh, that estimate changes a little bit. What's property management service cost? These kind of pieces of information that they would, you know, if you went around and showed them a bunch of properties, they would eventually ask if you can get ahead of it and kind of simplify that for them and present that to them up front, it speeds the conversion cycle significantly. You know what I'm saying? So if I can answer all their questions in five minutes by sending them a piece of paper, I'm going to do that. Then I'm more valuable and I can get them to decision point much quicker than if I just wait for them to have the same questions as to be honest, everybody else does. Everybody has the same questions. They're not new. They're not unique we all kind of wonder the same things and should. You know what I'm saying? We love to think we're unique. Every person loves to think they're unique. But at the end of the day, Google has it right. We're all statistically predictable is probably the way to say it. And so, um, you know, if you can kind of systematize that and have that in a really digestible viewpoint, it helps out and kind of greases the entire process.
0: Being proactive and getting that information out there early and quick, I assume because you probably made the error in the past and you had to walk through question by question and it drags out, and you figured out how to summarize it all and put it up front and speed up that process
1: yeah, so actually early on in my career uh, made a mistake i did, to be honest didn't have a whole lot of money at the time, it was in probably fall of two thousand eleven or twelve but I was kind of saw that I thought uh, real estate in certain markets of the nation was at a discount. Ironically, Vegas was one of those. And so I looked at, at buying a couple condos at the signature-powered MDM brand, um, and I should have bought. I, I should have found a way. I didn't have the money. But in that process, I talked to an agent several times who kind of became somewhat of an inspiration because he didn't have an office. He never met with buyers and sellers. He had a desk in an office in his condo in Vegas um, and did uh, about 80% of his sales to Chinese investors uh, all over the phone, sight unseen. He wouldn't even see the condo. He would, wouldn't see the buyer, wouldn't see the seller. Um, you know, He did several hundred transactions a year. Uh, and it was kind of that point of like, how can I provide more value to more people faster? Um, you know, instead of one person at a time, you know, helping them buy the house, the color isn't right, or the drapes don't fit, or I, you know, I don't know about cabinet orientation. It's like, uh, for me, investor, investing is logical, uh, and it's creating kind of, you know, ongoing wealth and ongoing income for people. It really changes a lot. Um, at the end of the day, it allows them to go to college. It allows them to provide for their family and their kids and all that stuff, um, and being able to do it in a, asset that's, you know, one of the most stable investment vehicles in the world, and also being extremely efficient about
0: servicing
1: buyers and sellers, don't see a downside. It's a win-win-win.
0: Let's talk some more about that student housing and some of the things that might be a little unique to it. For instance, I assume that location is really important, how close it is to the university. Is that true?
1: So traditionally, that definitely has been true, um, and I would assume that's true in most markets. Um, Obviously, some urban markets, it may be slightly different, you know, in downtown areas or something. We have seen, I will say, in the last five, 10 years, and really about seven years ago, kind of the sophistication in the student housing space um, and a lot of institutional funding coming in from hedge funds and Blackstone and Chinese money and that sort of thing. Um, That means it's not uh local builder, uh, building neighborhoods, some of that stuff, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars rolling into certain communities. So with that advent, we've seen actually student housing communities kind of purpose-built student housing communities. And the easiest way, if you, if you haven't been to one, is a master plan community with parks throughout and amenities and, and perhaps a clubhouse and maybe even restaurants and some of that stuff. Uh, Multi million dollar pools um, within a community, and it's all built specifically for students. So, with that, you need more land, and so there's actually been venturing of student housing farther and farther away from campus. So, uh, in our town, there's definitely a real healthy uh, kind of student housing center around campus, but you know, as in most towns, that tends to be the older property. and sometimes they don't have the amenities you want or energy efficient, something like that. Where I development I'm I'm somewhat a part of and uh sell a lot in is about three miles out and there's some communities that are five miles out. And what you get with that usually is more space, uh, a much newer property or a brand new property with ground molding and granite counters and stainless appliances and a grass backyard and, and some of that stuff with all these amenities. So um in a lot of university markets, you kind of seen this bifurcation of people that want to be right on top of campus, don't really care about amenities, and it's location based. And then people who are more lifestyle based, uh, which lifestyle is a huge buzzword in the real estate community, and I think it will continue to be as baby boomers get older and millennials can buy houses. Um, but you've seen kind of student housing paving the way in experiential living. And kind of amenities-based living, um, it's through that. But those are usually a little bit farther out.
0: For those master plan communities that are three, five miles away from the campus, are they typically on a bus line? Or how are the kids getting back and forth? This probably is somewhat dependent on the university setting. And I will
1: say whoever's out there who's working or looking at working in a market that's university-based, um, it's definitely important to research the university and see how that happens because every university is different. Texas A&M has quite a bit of parking on campus and almost every student pays for it. So you know, the majority of students drive, so it's not a big issue, but there is extensive bus service um, and it comes through most of the areas that are populated by students. But that is one really good consideration um, is location is relative, and the bus route almost becomes a determiner of location. Just like ocean creates creates oceanfront, the bus bus route creates demand, and so if you're a property on the bus route, you're usually going to trade or sell at a premium.
0: With student housing, I would assume that you have typically nine-month leases rather than a one-year lease. First of all, is that true? And if it is, how do you deal with the nine-month versus the 12-month deal, that? three months missing in the summer?
1: Great question. Um, and again, this is probably news for a lot of people who haven't been in the student housing space recently, uh, but with that sophistication that I said came in you know, about six, seven years ago, uh, really you saw a mass transition to 12-month leases uh, or 51-week leases. So there's not, I don't do anything with nine-month leases. And to be honest, the vast majority of properties that are at least higher-end or new properties don't. Uh, you'll see some you know, dilapidated properties uh, or lower-end properties doing some by the month or nine months, but at the end of the day, usually they charge the same amount that they would charge over 12 months and just charge it over nine months, so increase it kind of proportionally. So, it really doesn't make sense for the student. Do it for nine months because they're paying the exact same months we'll have for the extra three. So, again, I would try to get away from that. Again, for anybody who's out there, I'd try to get away from that because it does, it's a return killer, it's a huge pain, and kind of a burden.
0: Did I hear you correctly? Did you say that they're also doing 51 month leases? No, 51 week leases. Oh, 51 week. Okay. Yeah. 52 weeks
1: in a year, so a lot of student properties do 51-week leases, meaning that you know it starts on August 15th and it ends on August 7th, or maybe it ends on August 1st, so that they have a week or two period of time that is you know basically set for the make-ready portion. One of the unique things about student properties is they pre-lease, so you don't wait for it to be vacant before you advertise it for lease. Um, like you might in a residential setting, um, you're basically you have a lease that goes from let's say August 15th, to July 31st, um, and you're gonna start marketing that for lease in January. So you're gonna start marketing it for at least seven months for that vacancy, and pre-lease it let's say in February or March, so that you know you have another tenant year after that's currently rented for. But you do have to obviously estimate a one or two week period to go in and you know, do touch-up paint and clean and do repairs um, and that process. And to be honest, I mean, for example, I did like 300 make readies in a week this year uh, on 300 properties. So you can't just do it in a day or two because of the sheer volume and that every vendor in town is um during that time. So you do have to definitely plan a week or two period of time in which to accomplish that.
0: Let's talk about the lead generation on each side of that business. Again, the student housing. Uh, One is these people who are going to be owners, these investors. They're either going to be investors or parents. How are you reaching out and finding those people? Let's talk about that first. How are you finding the owners of these properties? People are going to buy the properties and eventually become a seller. So the investors and parents, how do you go find them?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, So... One of the unique things about investors is, and I'll reference the other side first. If you kind of characterize a traditional real estate transaction, you know, where somebody's buying a house for themselves or even a second home, most people only have one home, the max two. So their life cycle is you're going to be dealing with them, let's say, every five years on average. An investor on the opposite side, um, usually, a lot of times, at least has got, you know, where financial wherewithal and ability. To take down one property a year, two properties a year. Uh, so, definitely an increased amount. So, you know, for any real estate agent out there, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out you need uh, you know, 10 to 20% of the clients that you would need if you were doing additional residential real estate if you're doing investment, just because they're, you know, to, to equal the same number of sales. So, a lot of, once you get, that snowball all happens a lot faster in investment real estate. You know, once you get 20 or 30 investors is really all you need, you're probably going to have 30 sales a year. I mean, realistically, if you're good at finding finding property for them and presenting to them the ups and the downs and modeling uh, the financials and what what that's going to look like, um, they're going to be willing to, to uh, move forward. But a lot of it depends on you educating them Um, and having that knowledge around how it is going to financially perform and then also having solutions in place. So, I mean, you have to have insurance solutions in place. You have to have contractor and uh, construction resources in place. You have to usually have some city relationships help uh, to push things through the city when they're asking for variances. Um, And then also, you know, sometimes some creative funding options. So so private lenders, um, mezzanine financing, any of that stuff help. To just kind of have additional tools in your tool belt to make them successful. But to go back to how you originally find them, um, a lot of it is going to be uh, there's a couple ways. One is to list properties, try to list properties, and find listings that are investment. So I got lucky and got involved in leasing and property management and access to some investors early. Um, so I use some of those contacts. But I mean, it's everything from cold calling or doing mailers to investor communities or ones that you know um, are high percentage of rentals to there's investor groups. You know, there's investment real estate uh, groups out there in almost every city that you can go to and meet investors. Also, I mean, literally just networking Uh, and usually, you know, networking in a little bit higher social sphere of country clubs or attorneys or doctors or that sort of thing that, that are potentially successful and have some money at disposal, but don't have the time to to invest it or the knowledge around that. That really, just kind of your base, your same skills that you use in any residential transaction, you're going to use an investment, but you just have to think like an investor. You also have to realize that most investors are more um, more do-it-yourselfers and willing to research. Uh, so your web. Presence and your value that you have in there is going to be huge. So, the investor doesn't necessarily want to sit down with you and see 20 properties. You know what I'm saying? They want you to email them uh, performance. They want you to email them kind of uh, some tools and some links to where they can learn more. Uh, and then, when they're ready to pull the plug, so it's kind of a different level of educational, say. Uh, because you have people that usually are intelligent, have been successful, and usually that makes them skeptical and watch their dollars a little bit tighter, and, and
0: that's what's made them successful. So you have to play to that and just be you know full and full of knowledge
1: and full of resources.
0: Let's talk about how you also have gone out and found the parents, the parents that want to invest for the four or five years that their kid's going to be there going to school. Are you using a different approach to go after and find those folks? You said it's about 30% of your business. Yeah, so let me uh, back up for a second, too. One of the key things I did was, you know, from the beginning
1: was kind of partner with a author of a student housing company actually locally. Um, and it was kind of a mutually beneficial relationship, but was able to get in at kind of the ground level and uh, kind of play a formative or key role in um, growing the business expanding from just building properties for sale uh, to really developing the leasing model uh, and the management model and pitch to investors and grow their sales by about a factor of three to four times uh, what they were doing previously. So that definitely helps. I'll say that. So, I mean, if you find a builder who's good at what they do, but they're kind of stuck in the regular build and and sell model, uh, just really being creative around that. I kind of back to the stability and consistency. So it's a tool, it's that consistent follow-up, it's a consistent habit. But then being creative and willing to step outside your box you know, and provide value in that. I've done everything from on. we need to change the floor plans. I think you can have cost savings by substituting these materials. I think we can dampen sound by doing this. I think creating a lot more value than just, I'm going to sell your property for you is greatly appreciated and respected. Um, so that's been a key uh, driver, obviously, of sales and listings and leads and all that stuff. But for finding parents, originally, I'll say, again, web presence, uh, Facebook presence, having some of that information out there. We've done mailers. Um, so any university, well, as I say that, any university in Texas, and I think different states have different requirements, but there's some freedom of information where if you ask the university for certain mailing lists of students or their parents, they have to give you certain data sets. Um, and so, for example, we set mailers out to 10,000 parents um, of incoming freshmen or sophomores or whatever student groups you want to. Uh, you could also, you know, I think we all know at some of those mailing services out there, you can specifically target um, really some key demographic segments Facebook is also huge, to be completely honest. We have actually not used it, but by the time that some of their demographic stuff really got robust, we already had our machine going. But I'd say really relying on that because, you know, for example, if you know 90% of the, the people coming through university live in this metropolitan area that's close by, you can target parents of students who are going to the university and make over X number of dollars a year, and they went to that university and some of that stuff. Um, for very very targeted marketing. So getting in with that, and then I'll say, I mean, it's like anything, activity begets activity. So just relying on a snowball, but you know, parents that have bought in our first year or so, or you know, or anytime throughout my time, have been basically my best source for ongoing leads. We had, we've had people in Europe, and Florida, I mean, on the beaches talking about our properties, and you'd be amazed where they've sold properties for us almost because they were talking to another parent that they just happened to run into and uh, had a child, you know,
0: going to the same university. So now a quick word from our sponsor Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search Real GTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. I was curious about that mailing question, so let's talk about that just for a second. You find a list of parents, uh, of students at the university, say sophomores. What type of mailer do you send out to them? That's how you find them. What do you send them? What's the pitch or what's the presentation? What information are you sending them? Is it a postcard, is it a letter? What are you telling them in there to get them to call you and start the conversation?
1: So that's another great question that I did kind of skip over, so I apologize for that. So one thing is, again, I'll go back to the education, giving them enough information to digest and have to kind of dwell on and um, come to their own conclusions. So it's not just a postcard with some flashy pictures and call me. You know what I'm saying? We actually did a, uh, I think it was an eight and a half by 11, half-fold brochure that was stickered together, taped together, uh, where they could open it. And it did obviously have some attractive professional pictures and graphic design on there, but it clearly delineated out not only what we were providing, it actually had an even more dumbed down kind of pro forma uh, for the parents of how much money they would save given you know, our projections and historical actuals of sales increases over the four-year cycle of buying a property for their kids. Kind of a range over the years, but the ones we've done—I mean, you're looking at a 50 to 70 grand savings over leasing, you know. So you look at that versus tuition cost and housing costs, and it's like—so if you're a parent, it's a no-brainer because you're sitting there thinking how expensive college is, and all of a sudden there's this solution where I can own an asset, uh, especially if I have a little bit of money in the bank making almost nothing. I can own an asset, but my kids can essentially live for free. And it'll probably end up paying for the majority or all of their call in by this one thing. Some of the ones that I've told people on three, four years ago, they've performed as good and, to be honest, most of the time better than we originally expected. Um, So, that in and of itself, is usually rewarding to see these very good financial results that are consistent. Uh, Now, certain parts of the nation are more highly fluctuating. Luckily, we're in a strong market, but it's very, very stable. Even in 2008, 2009, the market went down like 1%, um, not significant. So it's not a highly fluctuating market. So I have more reassurance in selling people on taking risks because they have much lower chance of ever losing it, where if I was in a highly fluctuating market, I'd probably be a little more timid or bolus on pushing them, um, but I can't be. So that's different. But that is a um, critical piece that we gave them enough information that they could open it, they could decipher what they would say. They could come to their own conclusions. They could set it on the kitchen counter and leave it there for a couple weeks, you know, probably like most of us do, and
0: then come back to it on a Saturday and say, you know, we really need to look at this. Let's call uh, and let's schedule time to go look at it. In that brochure that you're sending out, do you have specific properties that you currently have available? You have samples of what you're talking about?
1: Yes, it includes. So we did one specifically for the development that I've kind of partnered with. Uh, so it was like a sample property. This is what we're selling one of the properties for. This would be the return. I've also done it for other independent properties. And then it's using the exact property, exact price, and exact rental history. You know, for example, let's say we're selling it for $189,000 and it's most recently leased or currently leased for $1,850 a month, when it's leased for the next two years. You can bake in some of that information if you have the real number. Or you can use, you know, based on the owner or the property management company in play, you can use the most recent numbers uh, that were used.
0: And I want to talk about also how you find the students. But first, I want to step back and talk about your property management side of your business again, just for people to get a perspective of the scale. How many properties do you currently have under management?
1: Under management, we have about 300. Uh, a little bit of 325 ish uh, properties under management. For
0: folks that haven't done property management, you get a fee for finding the tenant and then also for managing the property throughout the year. Could you give us a quick breakdown of how you get paid to do property management? Yeah, definitely. So property management,
1: yeah, obviously, varies a little bit, I'll say, by market. So what the percent charge um, and the, the fee structure does vary. I've seen it vary by a couple different ways. Usually, there, there are two components or at least one of two components. Leasing fee, so that's a percent of the monthly, like one-month rent um, that's charged out front for obtaining the lease. And then there's also an ongoing percent of the rent collected each month, which incentivizes the property manager to both rent property and also have to collect the money each month that they got in the original lease. So a pretty typical structure is 50% of one month rent for the lease, and then uh, at least in our market, anywhere between six and ten percent of the monthly rent collected as the management fee that does not include you know repairs or any of that capital property maintenance that's all passed through, meaning that if a repair person charges hundred dollars, you bill the owner for hundred dollars uh, but it does include some of all the internal operating costs you know your staff, your location. Uh, property management software, you know, all that kind of burning, some of that stuff, and it depends on the model. Property management, if anybody's been in it, which I'm sure there are, is that people know it as as not real desirable, and sometimes a beating, to be completely honest, it is. It is at some level, so I, I can't sugarcoat it. Uh, it's not something I recommend for the um, probably the casual agent kind of have to go in, it's definitely a value add for somebody who wants to specialize in investment properties uh, and do it at scale. Now, I've seen people do 10, 15, 20 properties of property management, and they spend all their time doing that, making $1,000 a month. And it is not pencil and there's a huge liability. There's actually much greater liability with property management than there is real estate sales,
0: um,
1: ironically. And so uh, I would not recommend it from that regard. But if you do want to create kind of an ongoing system where you're adding value for investors, it is a great kind of piece of the business to build and implement effectively that allows you to sell a property to somebody, uh, have ongoing servicing of that property and the ability to execute on what you promised them and then also the ability to sell it and flip that into something else and grow their portfolio. Is again, kind of converting you know, your average client from buying one property every five years to one property every six months, if you can implement an effective, investment strategy.
0: You're able to maintain them in your system, as you said, so that when they come out the other side, they either want to sell or buy another property, they're already in business with you. And it's more likely that they're going to do business with you on that end, which I assume is a little more profitable. On the property management side, you said six to ten percent and so forth. Are you charging on the higher end of that range or the lower end of the range? And is your property management just breaking even, or are you making a profit there as well? So definitely making a profit uh, for the
1: amount of time. You know, for example, we have a property management about ten employees, full-time maintenance staff. You know, we have some real estate offices. You know, that we have to pay for and all the infrastructure that goes with that. So given the risk and the size of the operation, um, it does not profit. Uh, it's a lot more work than the profit that comes out of it, but it's not a loss leader or anything by that nature. But, you know, compared to apples, you'd probably much rather sell a property than manage it because uh, you're going to
0: make the same amount, you know, over three years as
1: well one sale.
0: Are you pricing yourself at the high end of the property management fees or the low end based on your model? Great question as well. We are
1: slightly on the high end. We're at 8.5% currently, but, you know, we provide a lot more than most and we have a couple hundred thousand dollar a year marketing budget that we use for most properties. Um, We have, you know, built-in maintenance on sites that respond within usually within four hours to a property call. So, so i making a very high level of customer service at least relative to the competition.
0: But um, so all that today, we're a little bit on the higher side, but we're not the highest. On the property management side, I would anticipate a challenge. And that is, you mentioned that the majority of your properties are going vacant and then immediately being re-rented there in August. Do you have to balloon your staff or take on contract help during that time period? Or are you able to do that with the people you have? So yes
1: and no. Um, we don't Really the only piece of it that we have to balloon the staff for is for the kind of maintenance and turn side that I said earlier. So that, that one or two week period of kind of make ready and turning all the properties over, when you're doing a couple hundred in a week or two, you have to hire at least 5 ten additional people literally just to, you know, take trash out of units and put eyes on things and make sure painters are painting and some of that stuff. We also use, You know, for a lot of that kind of manual construction side of things, we use vendors, you know, and we vet the vendors and look at their previous work and have history and some of that stuff. Um, So a lot of that construction maintenance side is outsourced as well. But you also need your own staff to be able... I mean, you can't be in 10 places at once and you can only work, you know, 20 hours a day. So it's uh, got to staff up a little bit for that time. Um, Student properties, again, I'll say, you know, some people are in property management and say, I. I know property management, but they're, on, they're in residential side and some people own student housing. It, there is a pretty big difference between regular residential property management and student housing property management. And I'll give you a quick example: regular property management. You have a house that you rented to a usually let's say a family or a couple, and they pay their rent on time every month. There's one payment. If something goes wrong, if one person calling you uh, more than half the time. They'll have to fix the repair item themselves. Conversely on student housing, you have that same unit and you've rented it to four individuals and they each have at least two parents, <laughs> probably two and a half, <laughs> you know, just because the four is theirs. And so at, at any one time, if the faucet's leaking, you might get 12 calls. So where the family might have fixed it themselves, the students may blow it out of proportion and freak out. The parents think you're not taking care of their kids. You're getting all this stuff. So, You do definitely, on a student housing side, you probably need two to three times the staff that you would on a regular residential side. uh, And that's literally just take phone and calls and emails and and have more intentionality around it. And so that's, you have to charge more. Now, on a regular residential side, we could probably make money at 5% fee. I uh, mean, you know, five or six percent fee, but at eight per eight and a half percent fee, we're not making any more money than we would at five on a
0: residential property. Yeah, more labor intensive. That makes sense. Let's talk about how you find those tenants, those students, to put into these properties. What is your marketing effort to find those students? We have a pretty robust, I guess, is marketing calendar and outlay. We started kind of crafting it for
1: really semester at a time or year at a time, and planning that out it's a mix being very intentional and planning it out um, as well as you know we do some on-campus events we do some on-site events to bring people actually out to the property uh, we do some bigger events we have consistent you know radio advertising and sponsor some events around town and that sort of stuff um, as well as a you know, pretty strong and consistent social media presence So I'll say all that that you have to with students a lot of it You know, most students and millennials nowadays, they're afraid to pick up the phone, but they'll text all day. You know, they'll kind of do the anonymous forms of communication, so submitting an online request, maybe shooting an email, but more or less text, responding to Snapchat or Instagram posts, something like that. And so you kind of have to be where they are and be receptive to that. Uh, and so there's a lot of intentionality around, again, it's really having your customer set in mind. Now, I'll go back to that because I think that's applicable to anybody, but really thinking like your customer, whether it's a family wanting to buy a house or whether it's an investor wanting to buy five properties here and put some money in a place where it gets you know, a good return, or whether it's a student, you have to say, what's the average age of this person? Where are they located? What are their like? What are their communication habits? Do they text? Do they call? Do they want me to do it late at night? Do they want me to do it during the business hours? Do they want information up front? Or do they just want to meet and look at a property? And really thinking about that, um, one of the... And it's kind of an offshoot, but one of the things that I've stuck doing customer experience over the years has actually been Victoria's Secret. Um, And they, for anybody who's kind of researched the brand, they're one of the best that they have a... um, They have kind of their imaginary customer. Um, and i can 't remember her name like she 's a twenty two year old lady who lives in London who you know goes to this job and that sort of thing and everything they do is with this kind of fictional uh customer in mind, and what would she like and what how would she respond and some of that stuff and it 's almost looking at your customer set from that style, obviously our customers range the gamut, but um, they all converge on you know a lot of times, if you're targeting for students, you know they're going to be between 18 and 22. There's some very specific friends and how they communicate and what they like and what they're attracted towards and what they enjoy doing and when they enjoy doing it and some of that stuff. And so, crafting it around that kind of almost like fictional or average consumer, uh, is you
0: you have an avatar of person you're marketing to. Yes, yeah, exactly. You've mentioned it a couple times that. You have partnered with a developer in one of these master plan communities for student housing. Let's go into that. Could you tell us, first of all, I'm sure people are curious, how did that come about? How did you hook up with a developer of one of these communities?
1: Yeah, definitely. So it started back in late 2011, um, after it was my first year. Uh, really pinched him on the idea. Got connected through a mutual friend. Uh, and then pitched them on the idea of doing the student housing model. There weren't a ton of people doing it in our town at that time, um, but at that time, they were building about, I think it was about 20, 20, 22 properties a year, town homes a year, and just selling them to parents. So that's all they did. Didn't lease them, didn't manage anything like that. Um, and it was really pitching them on that, um, you know, we can have this kind of full-service model, uh, and we can really potentially increase, the one, the, the sales price of these properties by increasing the demand, and also, two, increase the number that you're selling. Um, and so, miraculously, it, it's still hard to believe. Looking came back, but we went from them building, let's say, 20 or 22, to that first year, the, the next year, within 12 months, built 116 townhomes and completely sold out 100%, at out 100%. Wow. Yeah, more than quadrupled the amount they were building and expanded the profit margin by about 30%. So, you know, if you're sitting there as a builder and you've made, you know, roughly, let's say, about five times what you thought you were going to that year, um, it's pretty convincing. You know what I'm saying? So, again, it's about providing more value than, you know, the cost you bring because, obviously, builders and realtors, at least a lot of areas, there's somewhat of a um, a slight distrust <laughs> Or, you know, a rub, potentially. And so if you can do something like that and really show that, like, there's a ton of that. It's not just I sell one property and I charge you 3% for it. It's like I'm increasing not only the price you can charge for it, but the number that you can build. And even if that's only 20% more or 30% more, um, if you can do that to a builder and show them that, um, I think you really earn their kind of respect and to see, like, you're in it with them, um, and you're not trying to charge them a fee, but you're literally trying to grow their business and make them more money.
0: So you've been with this developer now for about five years. Have you been doing the same master plan community that entire time, or have you have you built out multiple properties, multiple uh, developments, and how many?
1: Yeah, so been with the same developer here called Barracks Townhomes. Been with the, the same um, same one, you know, ever since that. 2011. At the same time, you know, I've, I've obviously sold properties throughout the city,
0: um, you know, and for
1: another builder or two as well in some other subdivisions in development. But the, the the biggest one has been has been the barracks. So I've experienced in multiple kind of, you know, new builder communities as well as extensive in the, the resale market.
0: And how big is the barracks? How many properties have you all built? Uh, We've done,
1: uh, over the whole course of it, uh, about 700, a little over 700 properties. In the past five years, probably done about 400 of those.
0: How big is the development? How many more can you build on that piece of land? So, it just depends on the configuration, but, but let's say between 100 and 200. So you're looking at about one to two years out and you'll be done, you'll the place will be completely developed. You'll continue to manage the properties. Will you then start another development?
1: So that's definitely the topic, you know, definitely potential. Uh, you know, I think anybody who's experienced you know, success in one area look to say how can we leverage this or reproduce it or that sort of thing. There's also, you know, the key element of kind of what we've built. It probably is, is fairly common sense, but with the property management arm and the ability to grow it to, you know, four to 500 properties that are under management comes those consistent retail. So, you know, doing simple math, if you have 400 properties a year and, uh, you know, the average holds it for four years, you're looking at 100 properties buying and selling every single year, uh, at least if you can double-side it. So, you know, if I can get half, you double-side half of those, uh, you're looking at hundred and fifty transaction size a year just on the resales of this one community. So um again, pretty decent numbers, kind of ongoing to be honest. That was one of the main points in me being interested in starting the property management thing up front was kind of seeing that potential. And obviously nothing's a given when you start out. You know, if it was successful and kind of went the way we thought it could, looking at that long term play and consistency of income.
0: Let's talk about your arrangement with the developer. What is your role in the development of the project? It sounds like you're doing the marketing and then the property management on the backside, and they're responsible for, for building out the properties. Do I have that correct?
1: Yeah, that's correct. Um, there's also, you know, there is somewhat boring lines, I'll say, of, I never want to say that's not my job. And I think if I see issues, I try to, you know, solve them regardless of if I feel like it's my responsibility or not at some level. So one of the issues, again, with, with math is people doing custom collections, whether they're wanting a certain flooring or a certain paint color or this done or that done.
0: So there is
1: kind of some quality control built in too, where, you know, sometimes I'm walking the units or, you know, my transaction coordinator walking the units uh, and making sure that certain things were done correctly and when they're not, pointing them out to the superintendents and the, and the construction teams and making sure those are rectified. There's also collaboration on floor plans and efficiency there. So, um, you know, I'm involved in, in working in the construction world. You become more familiar with, uh, you know, cost of construction and some ways to leverage, you know, how do you get more square footage for the same cost of construction so that it, it markets better and um, and the floor plans, some of that stuff, stuff. So, Some of the preliminary planning, too, you know, I'm also involved in. And at the end of the day, what it comes down to is if I'm the one who has to sell it, I want the most sellable product. You know what I'm saying? Like, I want product that appeals to the most buyers, that's the most attractive, that provides the most square footage for the most reasonable price, and that'll increase demand and increase price, and it just makes my job easier on all fronts. Same thing with the quality control. Like, I don't want, if there's an issue with, something from fixture being put in correctly, I don't want it to derail the transaction because we found it during walkthrough one hour before closing. You know, I want that to be fixed and done so that when we do our final walkthrough before closing, you know, it's five minutes and we're great, you know, everything's perfect. So um, really being intentional about that, like not saying that's not my job, especially on things that do directly affect you Uh, and the ease of which you can kind of conduct business
0: on the promotion of the development try to get people students to go over there and rent these places out you mentioned something about on-site events what are you doing with on-site events what do you mean by that
1: so students these days you know it's kind of a millennial generation there's a lot about them are very experiential so meaning um you know, probably the best way to say it is, you know, they don't necessarily care about owning a car or driving a car or owning a house, something like that. But usually, willing to spend, uh, you know, a thousand dollars on a music festival or something, you know, that doesn't necessarily make sense to, um, to be honest. You know, the, kind of the older generation, especially. So you look at that, and they're they're all about experiences. You know, so really entertainment and experiences. That's kind of what we try to body is to bring do an event that's kind of promoting the property. And for example, if you advertise on campus or that sort of thing, you might have a concert. You might have some competitions. You might have like we have a huge crawfish boil with a big, big thing in Texas uh, with, with blow-up slides and water events and a DJ and have Red Bull come out and some of that stuff. But just putting together some of those, those activities in at least a couple of years to, uh, to get students out of your property to kind of develop those brands um, really, uh, it it just really kind of adds another dimension to it that it's not
0: just a property,
1: but, um, you know, it's a place to live or a community or or whatever you're trying to achieve, uh, through that kind of experience aspect.
0: I looked at your website real quick and did I see that there's wakeboarding? Are you near water? We do. So some of that, you know, we have eight parks throughout, uh, with some different
1: amenities, like a dog park and, and volleyball courts and Horseshoes, water, and that sort of stuff. We also do have a uh, cable wakeboarding uh, park or lake that's about 1,100, 1,100 feet long um, and has some jumps on it. And you have essentially kind of a zip line that pulls you on a wakeboard in the water um, and is one of the features. We're, we're also completing a really something called Barracks, which is you know, an adult recreation venue uh, with a huge lazy river swim-up bar, private cabanas, and, like, three food and beverage concepts. It's kind of in the the center of our community. Um, So that's going to be, they're obviously going to have to pay for some of the aspects, uh, like the food and beverage, but also get free access to it, like the water and then the portion of it. So
0: we're really trying to, at least within the barracks, we're really trying to leverage some of that experience, the living aspect. If you get those folks to show up at the event, are you doing some kind of traditional marketing where you're trying to capture their information so you can contact them later? Or are you just trying to give them an experience so they talk about the community? Sometimes it's a sum of both.
1: Um, and I'd say probably an even mix of both. So, um,
0: you, you know, we'll pair it sometimes with
1: a drawing, a raffle, um, or just to get entrance to the, uh, to the event. you know, getting some information from them. Um, but half of it, too, is, you know, or at least half of the events are literally just to kind of get a buzz around the community. So I would say, again, kind of trying to make it applicable to everybody. Um, you know, if you if you have a property or a smaller property or, or something specific, uh, you may want to tailor it more towards kind of some of that, that data capture so you can follow up with a bigger property or a little bit more, um, you know, just effect. You're able to, you can justify spending the money for events like that that literally just create the buzz so that people come back and and want to leave from you and you don't necessarily, or even purchase from you, don't necessarily have to uh, capture their data at least all the time.
0: About 60% of your business is past clients, sphere of influence, repeating referrals. Do you have a, a database of past clients and sphere of influence? Fear of
1: influence? Uh, to Be honest, not not so much. I do not do you know some of the more traditional pop buys and some of that stuff. I'm very active in my community. I mean, I see I see a lot of people, and I kind of that as my quote pop buys, you know, for people to keep keep top of mind. Uh, but I do 100% have a database of past clients and actively leverage that. Um, so. Again, I'll go back to it's a little bit easier in, in, in an investor setting because you can send out, you know, if you have sold properties to 500 people, you can send out an investment property to those 500 people again. Where in residential real estate. It's a little bit hard. You have to probably tailor or you have to tailor who you're sending what to a lot more. But it's very, very similar uh, from that database and blasting stuff out to them and connecting with them and that sort of stuff or even just providing value. so there's kind of pieces of information for investors or parents in the area. For example, they're very interested in new commercial developments that are coming in the area or um, changes in the city or changes in code or things that the university is doing, uh, new initiatives, you know, when somebody famous visits or, you know, some of that stuff. There's plenty of stuff provide value, uh, even through simple communication, that you can you can stay top of mind.
0: On this past client group, do you have a formal marketing plan? Do you go out and stay in touch with them and you stay in front of them? And, and if so, what does that look like over the course of a year?
1: So yes and no. We have about Four formal times a year when we do something, you know, whether it's the flyers, whether it's an email, uh, whether it's an update on the market uh, or available properties. Besides that, it really is just ad hoc, and I try to be fairly consistent with it. It's not metered, it's not pre scheduled. Uh, it's we haven't sent something out in a couple of weeks, so it sends something out. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but it, it's waiting till, and, and I would say I have a huge emphasis on providing value. Um, you know, more, provide more value than you charge. Um, you know, I do really try to wait until I have something that I think is valuable, and I don't try to push. It. You know, there's we all know there's some of the real estate marketing systems out there, or people that advocate certain you know routines. The routines are great. I think some of the things that they push are maybe not. To be completely honest, you know, do I want a pre-printed thank you card with Some information that's really not valuable. No, you know what I'm saying. I want a property that's a good deal, or I want to be the first to know about a new restaurant that's coming to the area, or new development that's going in, or I want to know that that that, you know A and M is the the university is increasing uh, enrollment by this many students years out, so we think it may have these consequential implications. Some of that stuff. So really waiting until you have things of value to provide, I think is important. Again, it's all about consistency, but also delivering on what you're executing on.
0: Look, let's talk about your team on the sales side. It's pretty small. If I understand correctly, it's just you and one transaction manager. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, he is, he's a rock star um,
1: and it took about 12 months very close, literally working three feet apart for us to get, you know, in the routine that we've been in and are in. But I'll say, very good attention to detail. Uh, I think we think a lot of light, which is extremely helpful. She understands conceptually very well, educated, very kind of OCD on on tracking, uh, which you have to be. You know, anybody who's done sales and volume. You have to be meticulous about the details, whether it's a client specification of I want this color or closing dates changing or making sure an amendment is sent out or any of that stuff. You, know, you have 10 things during you an hour you have to have very, very good tracking systems for that. Yeah, and I'll say he's in the office 100% of the time uh, and then I'm the one who you know really goes out and it works well from that standpoint is you can always hand things off to, to that person and know that they're at least tracked and going to be taken care of. And then circling back, you know, we have had a routine where you know, basically start off the day together and end up the day together, or at least you know, whether that's an overphone check-in to make sure that no balls were
0: being dropped. And how long have you and the transaction manager been working together? Uh, about three years. And you and he together are putting together and closing 200 transactions a year. There's no other buyer agent or listing agent or other agents that are helping you put together these sales.
1: No. We have the property management staff that you know, kind of the front of the business. But they are if anything they're just taking messages and passing them off. They're not involved in any of the any of the sales activities. So you might say the equivalent of one receptionist, you know, in addition to that kind of you know, for somebody who doesn't have that property management arm. But it's a very, very lean staff. And I like it. I like it. We work a lot and we work hard, but you also know you have a very tight control on things uh, that you wouldn't if, you know, it was with, with the more people that you get. Find the right person and, and reward them appropriately and push each other
0: and have a boss doing it. Are you profitable? Uh, yes. Would you mind disclosing to us what your profit margin is? Yeah, I don't have the numbers
1: to be honest at my fingertips, so this is the guesstimate, uh, but eighty percent I mean again, it's all about I think pushing the top line number and then saying lean to be honest with day, and I feel like I've been fairly effective at both.
0: Well, Luke, what drives you? uh
1: <laughs> that's a great question
0: um, i at challenge. Really, I
1: love new challenges. Um, I love learning about things, uh, and I love real estate. Kind of weird to say, I mean, it goes back to, like, even from a, a young age, I was fascinated by real estate, and to this day, I love real estate, and I love I love walking a construction site. I love uh, dealing with issues. I love creating value and helping somebody grow in their portfolio, and I, I love walking somebody through their first home, too. You know, So so that in itself, you know, drives me. But really, the taking on it, you can kind of see through everything I've done in a fairly short period of time. But um, sales wasn't enough, so we got into property management, and property management was enough. So, we, you know, we, we, I've done some flips. I've done some investing. I've done some, some new construction. I've, I've done uh, most pieces of the business. And really, I love – it's just from a kind of a, a thirst for knowledge and learning new pieces of it. Uh, and, and just being wanting to be really good at what I do, and uh, you know, being the most valuable to, to those clients around me and those people around me. So, at the end of the day, that's really what drives me. I like being good at what I do, and I like being successful. And you know, money is sometimes a byproduct of that. But at the end of the day, I'm actually, you know, I'd say <laughs> there's a lot of real estate agents out there that are kind of notorious for overspending, spending more than they make. And I'm probably on the exact opposite of that spectrum. Now, and, and money's nice. But it's definitely not the reason I do it. It's it's the
0: challenge and and uh, just being the best at what I do. Well, Luke, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? Save money. <laughs> <laughs> That's hands down. Uh,
1: save, save as much as you can. And I, I've given this this advice to probably a hundred agents. But the majority of agents out there fail because they can't afford to be a real estate agent. So, I would say hands down, save at least six months of living expenses and then cut your living expenses and be able to stomach that time. Because I think if you, at least, you know, over over my short career, people that I've seen be able to make it on their own uh, and get to a point of stabilization and sales, they may not be selling a ton. They may be selling 10, 15, 20 properties a year. It's still a very good income and it's sustainable and they enjoy it. Um, but it 's the people who run out of money and feel desperate and make bad decisions uh, because they didn't you know they thought they would make money their first month of the business and that's not realistic so i'd say from that financial standpoint, set yourself up for success and then you know I think that gives you freedom to be strategic and intentional about what you think the right uh, i guess the right actions are and in every market that 's going to be a little bit different, but you know kind of what I talked about having um, at least some start of some systems, have some tracking systems for clients about how you're going to track them and keep in touch with them and that sort of thing. And then what activities do you think are the right ones to get you where you want to be? Is that holding an open house every week? Is that making 10 phone calls a day? Um, is that, uh, you know, going to a new social event every week and trying to hand out five or 10 business cards? Is that joining the, the realtor builder association in your community? Whatever that looks like, uh, you know, and and creating kind of a specific uh, routine and patterns and calendars of those activities and then doing them, I I think are two or three of the biggest things, basically, have the financial capability and have the system, and then go from there.
0: Luke, do you think that top agent interviews like the one we're doing now with Mastermind Agent are valuable? Um, I think they're
1: extremely valuable. (laughs)
0: Uh, I, I will say, you know, this. Just this is just real
1: life. I think um, a lot of people what think they want to be successful or think they want to be good, and very few people are willing to do what it takes. I would urge anybody listening that it's nothing about what I'm saying, it's about what you implement you know and that's whatever kind of interviews that you listen to, what you implement is most important so actually take something out of what I'm saying say and implement it, um, and if you do that every time. You have an experience like this. I think you'll you'll end up in a much better spot than you're at.
0: Well, Luke, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? I honestly, I said almost everything I have. But uh, just get out there and be
1: consistent, be intentional, uh, create kind of consistency and structure, and I think that allows you to be creative. And I'll rego to that again. I think consistency, and structure applies to your your business habits, the hours you're in the office, what you do, how you track it. It also applies to your personal life because you're in business for yourself. So your personal financial fi- finances also play a part in that. Don't buy a bigger house than you can afford. Don't buy a bigger car than you need. Don't overspend because you made $10,000. Put it in the bank, save it so that you're stable so that you can make the right choices um, going forward. And then in the creativity aspect of it, I'd really say, you know, know your craft and be an expert at it in whatever way you want that to be, whether that's construction or property management or investment or just residential real estate and interior design or whatever drives you in that regard. Be creative in that and add more value than anybody else out there. So that's it.
0: Well, Luke, you have been creative in your approach to real estate. You focused on student housing, parents, and investors. You teamed up with an investor to build out a student housing master plan community. You've added value to your investors, parents, students, developer partner, and yourself by seeing a bigger long term picture for all involved. You think more long term relationships than single event transactions, and in the process, found a way to create quicker repeat business and profits for all. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent. Of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who sold 190 homes last year, helping regular people become investors. Find out who he is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five star review and write a quick comment. I read them all.